This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Quote, You may recollect that when I visited Sheridan at Charlestown, I had a plan of battle with me to give him. But I found him so thoroughly ready to move, so confident of success when he did move, and his plan so thoroughly matured that I did not let him know this, and gave him no order whatever except the authority to move. I was so pleased that I left and got as far as possible from the field before the attack, lest the papers might attribute to me what was due to him. End quote. And that is former general and president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, speaking about General Sheridan. Ulysses S. Grant was born April 27, 1822, in Point Pleasant, Ohio. He died July 23, 1885, in Wilton, New York. And most of you will recognize Grant as having been the general that ultimately defeated the Confederates and brought about a conclusion to the Civil War. Grant also, as I mentioned, served as the 18th president of the United States, serving two terms from 1869 to 1877. Now, Grant is one of the many successful military leaders who then became national leaders. These include folks like Washington and Taylor, Johnson, and of course, Eisenhower. And in fact, I learned that of the 46 presidents of the United States that we've had, all but 15 served in the military, some in local militias, some in the regular military, some in the reserves. Now, Grant famously accepted the surrender of Confederate General Robert E. Lee at the McLean House in Appomattox, Virginia, on April 9, 1865. This had followed years of fighting, which had taken Grant and his armies, which were ever-increasing in size and responsibility from the Western Front, which, remember, at the time, the American West didn't extend much beyond the Plains states. So... The fighting along the key logistical thoroughfare of the Mississippi River marked kind of the western edge of much of the fighting in the Civil War. Of course, there were battles further west than that, but Grant's fame grew at many of the battles that took place right along the Mississippi River. And of those battles along the Mississippi River, the battles of Vicksburg and Chattanooga were probably two of the largest. They gained him notoriety and promotions to up to and including the eventual command of the entire Union Army under President Johnson after President Lincoln was assassinated. And this war, as I mentioned, had been raging since 1861 and would last almost four years to the day by the time Lee surrendered. It's difficult to ascertain the true numbers associated with the conflict, as record-keeping back then was difficult and, and somewhat inconsistent. And death counts range anywhere from 650,000 to 850,000, with total casualty numbers in the 1.5 million range. And remember, the difference between a casualty and a death is that casualties are people that are taken from the fight for a variety of reasons. They could be serious injuries, they could be burns, they could be post-traumatic stress. Those are casualties. Those are folks that are no longer able to fight. That does not necessarily mean they were killed. So... The way to think of this is that every death is a casualty, but not every casualty is a death. And let's take, for example, the low number, right? Let's say just 650,000, just as if that's somehow an acceptable number. But 
only 650,000 died. Now, that death count at that time in America totals around 2% of the population of the United States that died in those four years on American soil, killed by other Americans. Now, extrapolated out to today, where the U.S. population stands at approximately, as of, the, as of this recording, about 331 million, that number would be about 6.62 million deaths. Now, to put that in context, the CDC estimates that 659,000 people die every year from heart disease in the United States. Now, if we were to take that 6.62 million deaths that we could expect if this were extrapolated out to today, that's more than a decade's worth of death. That's more than 10 years of heart disease deaths. Put another way, in the wars, in the post 9-11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, 7,057 U.S. service members died meaning it would take more than 938 equivalent periods of time. Remember, these wars lasted about 20 years in comparison to the four in order to total the same number of deaths that were lost in the American Civil War. And because I like numbers, one final comparison is that that would require more than 1,800 years to total the number of deaths that America lost in those four years of the Civil War. So in short, to, to put a bow on this, it was horrific. Grant lost many, many brave men and women in the fighting. And it's no wonder that his tactical and strategic capabilities left no one guessing as to his ability to lead. His election in 1868 makes perfect sense when you look at it from that perspective. Now, as usual, Grant was not perfect. No one we've ever covered on this podcast has been perfect. It took him many years and many failures of the generals that were over him. Some, in fact, if you look at the details of his campaign, he straight up ignored or contradicted in the way he conducted his forces on the battlefield. And if you want to read more about that, read about his Western campaign, specifically the months leading up to Vicksburg and Vicksburg itself, and you'll see just how much he had to outright contradict or ignore his superiors. And he wasn't even close to Lincoln's first choice to lead the army. It took years for him to get there. Now, as president... He was, he was also a victim of those imperfections. He was tainted by the Black Friday gold panic in 1869, where relatives, by marriage, attempted and succeeded to leverage him in his position as president for insider information and appearances with the president that combined to allow them to profit significantly off inflated gold prices. And Grant also suffered from what is known as the Whiskey Ring where a diversion of tax revenues, bribery of government officials, and the ultimate prosecution of many members of the president's own party, the Republicans, which is largely the polar opposite of today's Republican Party, mind you. So the Republican Party of Grant's time is much more closely associated with the Democratic Party of today. That's a whole nother episode. And of course, finally, at the, the sunset of his presidency, arguably the most controversial election in American history took place. And that was the election of 1876, which helped to cement Grant as one of the lowest-ranked presidents. He resided around 38th for many, many years. And that's 38th in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, before we had 46 presidents. So he was way down at the bottom. And the election had all the trappings of the 2016 and 2020 elections, rolled into one, plus a little bit. Ultimately to reach an agreement that saw Hayes, 
ultimately supplant Grant as president. Grant and the other Republicans agreed to withdraw federal troops from the still tumultuous South and halt their reconstruction efforts there. And these efforts, although Grant couldn't have known this at the time, would remain largely halted for about the next 80 years. We did an episode a few back on Martin Luther King Jr. You know how a lot of the fights that he was fighting then were fights that were fought back in, in the late 19th century as well. So Grant was imperfect. Grant lacked in a lot of areas. He was extremely strong in some, but lacked in others. And who doesn't? I mean, clearly Grant was no saint. He was not a leadership savant. But while I've laid out a number of his failings, he was clearly successful in a lot of other ways. Which brings me back to today's quote. So, in 1864, Grant was engaged with Lee in a variety of skirmishes and serious fighting near Petersburg, Virginia. Now, General Lee is pinned down at this point and dependent on supplies from the Shenandoah Valley and other parallel valleys to the west of where they're fighting. And so he sends General Jubal Early up the valley to gather supplies with a secondary mission to distract the Union Army and ideally as a tertiary task, to threaten Washington, D.C. Because if he can threaten Washington, D.C., traveling up the valley protected by the mountains, and then head east and threaten Washington, D.C., then Grant will have to divert some of his forces to assist in the defense of the capital. Now, Grant, recognizing this, in turn, orders General Sheridan, his cavalry commander from the Army of the Potomac, which is part of the force that is actually entrusted to protect Washington, D.C., from the types of attacks that Lee wants early to prosecute against the city, to pursue General Early and displace him, drive him out of the valley. And Sheridan mounts a multi-month campaign to do this. Remember, most of the fighting during the Civil War happened during the fairer three seasons, spring, summer, and fall. And so Sheridan essentially fights from spring through the fall to drive early away from D.C., down the Shenandoah Valley, and ultimately completely from it, which contributed heavily to President Lincoln's re-election in the fall of 1864. Now, Grant, of course, being the commander of the full Union Army, had a vested interest in Sheridan's success. And so while he is engaged heavily with Lee, Grant took leave and rode to meet Sheridan near Charlestown, West Virginia. So that is what Grant is referring to at this time. And this was the purpose of this meeting was for Grant to give Sheridan a set of orders. He had written out a set of orders. I want you to do this at this time and then proceed here and then do this. This was very common at the time. This is how orders were passed. It was on paper, on horseback, not often in directly from the commander, directly to the subordinate, but often through a messenger. And upon arrival, an assessment of the situation in Charlestown, West Virginia, Grant quotes himself to author Adam Badeau, who was actually Grant's long-serving secretary and later war biographer. He says the following, quote, You may recollect that when I visited Sheridan at Charlestown, I had a plan of battle with me to give him, but I found him so thoroughly ready to move, so confident of success when he did move, and his plan so thoroughly matured, that I did not let him know this, and gave him no order whatever except the authority to move. I was so pleased that I left and got as far as possible from the field before the attack, lest the papers might attribute to me what was due to him. End quote. And as usual, there are some fantastic lessons in leadership in those short lines. 
Remember, Grant is a busy man at this point, with huge responsibility and a massive weight on his shoulders. General after general prior to him has failed. And he was fighting one of the most cunning and capable generals in American history, Robert E. Lee. Additionally, he answered solely to the War Department and ultimately President Lincoln himself, who was no stranger, as I've mentioned, to generals failing in his charges to them. Yet, when he visited Sheridan, he saw he had chosen the right man for the job. Yes, Sheridan's tactics were severe. He torched the fields and the stores of the Shenandoah Valley and all of its farms in order to deny them to the enemy, a tactic we today would call a scorched earth tactic, not unlike what the Russians did in World War II to Hitler's invading army in, on the Eastern Front there. But, as they say, desperate times call for desperate measures. And Grant assessed that Sheridan was not only ready to move, right? Grant had experienced his own disappointment in his subordinate's performance because the general that preceded Sheridan was General Hunter, and he had failed allowing Early to advance north in the Shenandoah Valley and to put D.C. potentially under threat, which is why Grant relieved Hunter and put Sheridan in charge. So Grant was not going to allow that to happen again. So he drafted battle plans to give them to Sheridan. But as he says, he never took them out of his pocket. He never divulged that he even had them. For all Sheridan knew, General Grant came up simply to assess the situation. And then, seeing that he was pleased, took leave and left. And this is trust. right? This is confidence. This is leadership. Grant didn't assume he had the best plan. He had a plan, but so did Sheridan. And Grant recognized immediately that Sheridan had the situation well in hand, and his plan was, quote, thoroughly matured, meaning Sheridan wasn't flying by the seat of his pants, he wasn't reacting, but instead was proactive in his approach to dealing with Early's Confederates. Now, of course, we don't know the exact words exchanged or the forum, but I like to imagine Grant riding into Sheridan's perimeter and that Sheridan and his staff are arrayed around a map table. I've probably watched Gettysburg a few too many times. And that Grant and Sheridan exchange pleasantries, and Sheridan lays out his plan. And Grant doesn't interrupt or demean or immediately launch into his plan. And then this is where the magic happens, right? Grant gets on his horse and gets out of the way. He knows that if he stays too long, his presence alone will co-opt the plan, even if it is Sheridan's. And he wants Sheridan to receive his due credit. And this is something that we can all learn from. We have examples, we have an example here before us of an imperfect leader who fell victim to bribery and corruption, who halted reconstruction efforts in order to ensure that his party stayed in political power. But he can still provide for us a fantastic example to follow. And eventually, as I mentioned, Early was routed, Lee was defeated, and Lee would surrender less than a year later. The Union was saved, and due in small part to Grant's attitude toward Sheridan and the trust that he had in his subordinates. And we should all learn from this example, that rather than falling in love with our own plan, rather than assuming that we know the best solution and it's just a matter of us conveying to someone, understand that we have thinking and capable subordinates who can put together a plan, who can be ready to move, who can show initiative, and that we trust them and let them do so. That's the example that I take today. And again, I hope this is the example that you take. When next you think you have the best plan, ask yourself, have you given whomever it is that you intend to give that plan an opportunity to prove that they too have a plan and are capable? And it may just be better than yours.
Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.